from the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, before we jump into this episode, I just want to say a huge thank you for all of your support over the last few months. As you know, this podcast was an idea that I came up with whilst I had COVID at the end of last year, but the feedback from the listeners has been absolutely amazing. I love all the messages I received through LinkedIn, through email directly, and even the verbal feedback that some of my fellow colleagues have been giving me as well. So really want to thank you for all of your support, which brings me on to some great news. I was super chuffed when I got to hear that this show has been nominated for the Creative Industry Awards and specifically in the category of Best Content Creator. Now, none of that would be possible without the amazing guests that I get onto the show. I'm purely a facilitator of conversation. So most of the credit has to go to the great insights that people bring to this podcast. So in return, I have a huge favor to ask from you. If you could please cast your votes for me following the link in the description on whichever platform you're listening or watching this podcast episode on, that would be hugely appreciated. I have no expectation of winning any award. However, it would be great to be able to ramp up some support and votes close on midnight on the 28th of August. So please do get in your votes before then. So if you click on the link, scroll down to the best content creator section and you'll see my name somewhere in the list. And then if you submit your vote, that would be much appreciated. And thank you once again for supporting the podcast. Now let's jump into the episode. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander. And today I have the amazing Todd Churches, who's the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumble, an innovative New York-based leadership development and executive coaching firm. He's a member of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100 Coaches. Todd was nominated by Thinkers50 as one of the eight global finalists for their 2021 Distinguished Achievement Award for Leadership. He's also currently ranked number 37 on the Thinkers360 list of the top 50 global thought leaders and influencers in the field of management, as well as number 17 in the field of design thinking. Todd is a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU in their School of Professional Studies division of programs in business, as well as a lecturer on leadership in various programs at Columbia University. Lastly, Todd is a TEDx speaker. He has an amazing talk called The Power of Visual Thinking. And he is the author of the groundbreaking book, Visual Leadership, which I have right here, which is all about leveraging the power of visual thinking in leadership and in life, which was published in 2020. So without further ado, I want to welcome the amazing Todd Churches to this episode. Hey, Todd, how you doing? Patty, great to be with you. It was, yeah, it was visual thinking that brought us together across the pond. So, uh, yeah, step boy. Yeah. And do you know something, Todd? That's probably the biggest and longest intro I've ever done on this show. So it just shows the amount of accolades that you've got. I'm just old and I've been around for a really long time. So it could be <laughs> one or the other or both. The last bit I missed off there was... I feel like we are friends as well, because I'm really 
grateful for this connection. And we've had you on the Visual Jam, those of the listeners that follow myself and the amazing Grant Wright on the Visual Jam, which is a visual thinking community that we co-host. You've been a guest on there as well. So we've had lots of interaction before yeah. today. Yes. Yeah, through social media and LinkedIn. It's like, yeah, it feels like juggling between you and Grant and a number of other people who I met on the Visual Jam. It's like we have this amazing global community of visual thinkers, visual communicators. My focus on visual leadership, as is in the title of my book. So yeah, it's all about how do you get people to see what you're saying? And that's the like one of the things that that brings us together. And yeah, we form this friendships, personal friendships, which have been really nice as well. Yeah. And I always love your bookshelf behind you there. It's just like full of books and just so intriguing. I wish one day I can pop over to your part of the world and actually check out some of those books as well. Yeah, well, I'm going to open up the Todd Church's business library and you could check out a book and as long as you re return it. Yeah, I'm a business book addict. Um, I hate to give away my age, but back in 1998, I was working for a leadership training company and they hired me to revamp their mini MBA program. And even though I had managed, I didn't really know anything about management and leadership. So I just had to start reading all these books and I, I got hooked because I've had so many horrible bosses. That's the main theme in my life, horrible bosses that drove me into management and leadership development. But reading all these books and I started reading tons of them and I continued the habit of reading one a week for the last, since 1998, so 20 plus years. So my number, my library, my shelves are overflowing. This is one of my many shelves, but I've read about 1,200 or more business books focusing on management, leadership, communication, et cetera, over the last 20 plus years. Hang on, Todd. Hang on, hang on. Did you say since 1998, you've been reading at least one book a week? Yes. Yeah. Some no. weeks I've read two or three, other weeks I may have skipped. Some of the longer books, like Adam Grant's book, Think Again, will take a couple of weeks to get through, but I'm always juggling two or three at, at one time. But uh, yeah, sometimes on a weekend, I'll, I'll read three books. So that's the average though, 50 a year over 22 years, whatever. I wasn't a math major. I was an English literature major. So whatever that works out to be, you could, you could do the, you do the math. So it's phenomenal regardless of the numbers. So that's fantastic. So Todd, let's focus on your career and the lead up to the book. So could you share your background? And I'd love to know where it all started. Sure. Well, actually, speaking of visuals, this is my visual bio. This is my resume in a visual stepladder form. So I'm not going to walk you through all 30 plus years. Actually, I'll go, I'll go back to age five. So in my TED talk, I say, and in my book, I mentioned when people would ask me, Todd, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, I want to be Superman. And you're wearing my shirt and I happen to have my Superman mug right here. And then people would laugh and say, all right, yeah, that's a great aspiration. What if you can't be Superman? Then what would you be? And my answer was, all right, then Batman. So those are my only two career aspirations as a kid. In fact, I still have them following me around. This is like, you know, so Superman and Batman, because I know the theme of your shows is, you know, what's your, you know, superheroes and what's your superpower, right? Visual thinking is my superpower. So Superman had x-ray vision. I have the power of visual thinking. And Batman had his utility belt. And I have my tool belt of visual thinking tools, tips, and techniques that we'll talk about later. So in a way, I've gotten to realize that five-year-old vision of being Superman and Batman combined into one. So but going back a little further, my dream was to work in television. I was obsessed with television, including shows like Batman and Superman. Got an English literature degree. I was very into reading, and even then, as a kid. So between television and literature, one of the common themes was storytelling, which is something that I use in my everyday work right now, right? It's all about we are the, all, each the hero of our own life story, right? So stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. There are villains, victims, and heroes. There's a quest or a goal. There are obstacles, barriers, and challenges that stand in the way. 
right? There's a resolution. There are lessons learned, right? The hero's journey. So what's interesting is that theme carries through my whole life and my whole career. So I started out, my first job was at Ogilvy and Miller Advertising in the U.S. I did that for a year. But if I, if you want to work in the TV industry in the U.S., you really have to be, not so much now because there's more done here in New York, but you need to be in Hollywood. So I packed up, I moved, I packed my bag and my capes, flew out to L.A., and I spent 10 years in L.A. I worked for Disney and CBS developing TV shows. I was a project manager in the theme park business. Did a couple of global, I did one at the Ducks for Imperial War Museum in the UK and, and one at Trocadero, a themed motion simulator ride. That was my first trip to London. And then I did a trip to China where I worked on a theme park over there. And I talk about that in my TED talk as well. So after 10 years in LA, I decided to move back to New York. And that's where I got into management leadership because the main theme in my life up until that point had been horrible bosses, toxic cultures, bad bosses, no leadership. So once I started realizing there are all these books written about leadership, I just got hooked and obsessed. And that's what I do today, executive coaching and management leadership training. So that's my career journey in a nutshell, which is a metaphor, by the way, which we'll be talking about shortly. Oh, yes. I love that metaphor as well, because <laughs> I remember that from the TED Talk. Yeah. Awesome. So Todd, in terms of visual leadership, if somebody out there is thinking, well, what is this thing? Is it a thing? We've never heard of this before. Tell us what that is and if you could just break it down for me sure visual leadership very simply is the application of visual thinking to the practice of leadership so to use a visual for those who are watching the video it's if you picture a venn diagram it's basically how do i use visual thinking and visual communication to manage and to lead right and we could talk about the different ways to do that but so often you know what what is visual thinking as opposed to just thinking people often ask that question a lot of times we think in terms of lists or numbers i always talk about three f's facts figures and feelings right people are not motivated by facts and figures they're motivated by their feelings so as a leader if you try to motivate people just by here are the facts and here are the numbers that's not very inspirational people are motivated by a vision and if you think about the word vision as it relates to vis everything we're talking about visual leadership visual thinking visual communication it's about seeing, right? It's about seeing a future state that is different from and better than the current reality. And then your job as a leader is to turn that vision into reality, right? So if you look at the word visual leadership, and I actually got the word patented. So I submitted it to the U.S. Patent Office. It was rejected twice. The third time they approved it. Um, but visual leadership as spelled with a single shared capital L, which a lot of people don't know this, reminds us of the fact that who we are and how we lead is inseparable from the lens through which we see the world, right? So we all have a lens that we see the world through based on our background, our upbringing, our culture, our education, our life experiences. So my father and my uncle were twins. They grew, had genetic similarities, grew up in the same household, and yet they see, saw the world in a very different way, right? So the other aspect is the rainbow eye on the cover of the book represents the fact that just as no one in the world has this color eye, no one in the world sees the world through the same lens that you do. So those are just a few thoughts to keep in mind. And if you think about your vision for the future, whether it's a personal vision or an organizational vision, it's about what do I want the future to look like? What do I want to see change different and better? Oh, so deep in terms of the cover you talked about there. I love that whole concept of the lens and the eye. And in the context of the book, when we say leadership, do we mean those senior people in organizations or other? What's your definition? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in my NY, I teach leadership at NYU in Columbia. In the very first session, I asked the class, oh, just for curiosity, how many people here are leaders? Show of hands. No one raises their hand. 
And what I say is by the end of tonight, I'm going to ask the same question and you're all going to be raising your hand because we're going to redefine what it means to be a leader, right? Being a leader is not about a title. We know a lot of people who have lofty titles who are awful leaders and people who have no titles who are amazing leaders. Leadership is about having a vision. It's about inspiring others. It's about creating followership. It's about changing the world. So even if you're just leading your own life and managing your own life, you are a manager and a leader, right? So even if you don't have direct reports or anything. So just by starting from there, then you could say, all right, how can I be the best manager and leader I could be? Starting from the point of, I need to manage and lead my life more effectively. And we could do that more effectively through using the power of visuals and visual communication. Got it. And visual leadership then, if you had to break that down, is it a framework? Is it a bunch of techniques? Is it a mindset? Yeah, it's all of of those things. It's a way of thinking. It's an approach. It's a philosophy. It's about keeping in mind that lens. One of my other concepts related to the lens of the eye on the cover of the book, in addition to the rainbow eye, is what I call flipping the eye. And this is a concept I came up with after I wrote the book, so it's not in the book. Sometimes people say, where is flipping the eye in your book? It's not in there because I thought of that afterwards. Flipping the eye basically just means you need to turn that eye on yourself, almost like as if it's a mirror. Look internally, question your biases, your assumptions, your belief systems. And also from a leadership perspective, ask yourself, can I see the world through the lens of others who are different from me? In the spirit of diversity and inclusion, belonging, equity, I need to be able to see the world from multiple perspectives. So that's one of the key concepts. So it's all of those things. And then it's an approach and a framework which I break down into when people say, all right, how do I do this? Right. You explain what it is and why it's so important and valuable. So now how do I do it? I break it down to four areas, though they're not independent. When used in combination, they're even more effective. And those four categories are, if people want to write this down, category one is using visual imagery and or drawing, right? That's about getting an idea out of your head and creating some visual representation that you could take in with your eye. And I know you're big on drawing and the visual thinking this jam community is very big on that. That's just one way. It could be using a picture. It could be using a prop. It could be using, for example, if I'm talking about, you know, if you can wave a magic wand and change one thing about you, what would it be, right? You know, what's the first idea that pops into your head when I mention the word leadership? You know, there's a saying that if you only have one tool in your toolkit and it's a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So I could go on and on for hours. I don't know if you have, do you have the character Curious George in the UK? Does everyone know Curious George? Yeah, I think I've yeah. seen some of those animations, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I always, so Curious George, I keep this on my desk to always ask me to remind me to be curious and to always ask why and to dig deeper. So again, using visual images, this reminds me to think globally. I keep this globe on my desk. You know, I'm a big baseball fan. This reminds me, when I use baseball analogies, they may not resonate with people from other cultures. They may want to use soccer or cricket or rugby when talk, or tennis when talking to people from other cultures. So I keep visual objects around me as visible, tangible reminders of concepts that I want to keep in mind and to illustrate as I just did. So that's category one, using pictures and or imagery or props. Category two is using mental models or frameworks, right? Why do we have so many models like Venn diagrams, a four box matrix, a circle, a pyramid, right? The saying we need to think outside the box is a cliche, but we can't think outside the box until you have a box with something in it. So a framework will help us to put things into categories or boxes or some kind of format that we could, or structure so we could see things more clearly and then maybe see, find solutions that we might not otherwise have seen. So that's category two. 
using models and frameworks. Category three is using metaphor and analogy. This one I keep on my desk as a reminder that whatever I do, it's just the tip of the iceberg, right? And then the iceberg, even if you don't see it, just the expression represents what we, you know, what we see and what we know is just a small portion compared to what else is out there lurking beneath the surface. And if we want to be good at something or learn or know more, we need to dive beneath the surface to find that other 90%. So that's category three, metaphors and analogies. And category four is using storytelling and humor, if appropriate. I know what you did a previous podcast where you talked about using comedy and humor. I was listening to that. Um, and so storytelling, as we mentioned, stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. You're the hero of your life story. If someone said, Patty, how, you know, how was your day yesterday? And you say, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. And you launch into a story. So a lot of times people say, oh, I'm not a storyteller, but we're all storytellers. We're all wired for visuals and we're all wired for story. That's just what it is to be human. So if you can leverage these things with more intention and purpose, you can be even more effective. So that's just a few. So that's my framework. And when used in combination, you can be really effective using these visual techniques. Got it. And what about people that say, hey, I'm not very good at art. I don't draw. For those folks out there, can they still be a visual leader, even though they may not have those artistic skills? Yes, definitely. I say, you know, we're all, as humans, we're wired for, for visuals and for stories. So even if you say, like, like I can't draw, I, say, I always say, if you, if you suffer from ICD, which is I can't draw syndrome, I'm sure you can still draw a square, a circle, a triangle, a stick figure, right? It's not a test of your artistic abilities. It's a test of your ability to use your right brain, rhythmic, the, the creative side in a visual way. So you can still use props. You can still use PowerPoint slides. You can find a picture that represents your idea. So even if you can't draw, so don't ever limit yourself by saying, I'm not visual or I'm not creative or I can't draw. So another visual to represent that, if you keep your mind closed and say, I, this isn't for me, you're not going to be able to leverage the powers. But if you open your mind, you'll create all this space inside to explore new ways of doing things. So there you go. That's another visual illustration of what we're talking about. And you're not even drawing anything, which is great. Like all of these props you're putting up on the video for those of the listeners that are actually watching this in video format. You've been popping up all of these different props and without really even pulling out a pen or paper. So, exactly. exactly. Yeah, a visual could be body language, I guess, as well. And you could use different expressions. Yeah. I talk about, you know, I always say it's, it's like playing Pictionary and charades, right? You could still, if you could play Pictionary with friends and family, you have the skills to draw. And if you do charades and use body language and or sign language, that's a, that's a form of visual communication that we often don't think about. So yeah, we use visuals in, in all different forms. And the key question, this is something that people often ask, what about people who may be blind or sight impaired? How does this apply to them? And what I say is you can still use visual language, right? You may not be able to take in information through your physical eye, but you could take in information in your mind's eye. And Shakespeare, having been a Shakespeare major, Shakespeare in the play Hamlet coined the term to see something in your mind's eye. When he saw the ghost of his father, he didn't know if it was a figment of his imagination or a real apparition. So when he said, I, I think I see my father in my mind's eye, that's a great phrase. It's a great metaphor because it's not your physical eye, but you see it in your, in your brain, right? So that's how you can still use visual language, metaphor, storytelling, even if you can see something physically. So like you're saying, some people may be listening to an audio podcast of this and not watching the video. They can still picture what we're saying as they're hearing it. Todd, what does the research and the science tell us in terms of this being an effective way of leadership? Is there any really compelling arguments from the science? 
Yeah, there's a lot of research. I don't dive deep into the research. John Medina wrote a book called Brain Rules, which takes a deep dive into some of this. But there's two principles that anyone could get very simply, and you can just Google these terms. One is called the picture superiority effect, PSE. And the research there shows that when pictures and text battle against each other, the pictures win. So pictures are superior to text in terms of three categories. And I, I talk about this in my TED Talk. I came up with these terms, attention, comprehension, and retention. When you use a visual image or an object and people are looking at it, it gets them to focus. They're looking at it. It gets them to understand. Like I can explain to you how to get to my apartment on the Upper East Side of New York from, from the airport verbally. But if I send you a map, then you'll look and I'll say, okay, here's the airport. Here's where you live. I see where it is. I now understand where you live relative to the airport. And comprehension, attention, comprehension, and retention. Retention, you'll remember a visual better than if I just explain something to you verbally. So in that way, that, that's the, that's an example of the picture superiority effect in terms of attention, comprehension, retention. And the other principle at play is called dual coding theory. That's D-U-A-L as in two. When you use pictures and text or numbers in combination, that's more powerful than either on their own, right? So for example, let's say someone sent you a LinkedIn invitation, but there was no headshot and you didn't know who this person was. Are you more or less likely to link in with them if they have a headshot or not? The research shows that if you have a headshot, they're more likely. Are you likely to buy a book or, not, or an item on eBay or on Amazon just from the description and the title if there's no image, no picture of it? You're more likely if there's a picture. A blog post that has a visual image is more likely to be read than one that doesn't. So there's so, so many real-life intuitive examples that if we're aware of it, we realize we're drawn almost magnetically to that visual image. So that's some of the science behind why this is so effective. Yeah. We can even just put ourselves in that position. I think about a few years ago, I think we were probably just about prepared to listen to a leader for an hour when we would have these big leadership kind of broadcasts at work. Then I think when YouTube really hit it big, people started saying, well, about 20 to 30 minutes is as long as I'm prepared to watch yeah. someone speak. And then obviously now in the TikTok age, it's very much if you're talking for more than a minute or two, like you've lost me. My attention yeah. has flown to something else just because there is so much distraction. Yeah. And I think the thing that maybe leaders need to think about is how are they going to retain people's attention? Because they are fighting for that engagement because of all of these distractions, right? Yeah. If you're going to, if you're as a leader, if you're going to get up there and have PowerPoint slides that are just bullet points and you're just going to read off them line by line, people are going to be asleep by point three, right? If you have visual imagery, and if you look at Steve Jobs' presentations and you know the work by Seth Godin and people who leverage visuals, it's much more powerful, it's much more compelling. And we all know that we've all been in really bad presentations and then yet we, many people subject other people to that same, those same bad techniques. And then they wonder why people zone off or weren't paying attention. So we really, like you're saying, we're bombarded by so much information. We have our phones within arm's reach all the time. So if we get bored, we can check our phones. Think about being on a Zoom call where everyone has their cameras off, right? And if you've ever delivered a presentation like that, you're not getting any visual feedback. So if you say something funny and you don't see any smiles or hear any laughs or so there's a completely, that, that visual connection is so important if you really want to connect with people. Like let's say the visual jam, let's say that was all on audio and there was no visual, think how different that would be if we weren't seeing each other's faces and using that, that I forget whether the whiteboards and the maps and all that kind of stuff and moving post-its around, that we engage people through visuals, through activity, through experiential learning. 
And then leaders wonder why people are bored or disconnected because they're not leveraging these techniques effectively. Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember when we first went into lockdown, I had to deliver some training with a cohort of about 12 people and uh, they were from different countries. And for two whole days, I literally had to speak to their avatars because nobody wanted to put on their camera. And yeah, yeah. I was trying to encourage people to put them on, but I couldn't mandate it. It was something that we couldn't mandate. And yeah. you appreciate there are times when people can't put them on because of you know, maybe bad bandwidth or you know other reasons. But I literally saw no one's face for the whole two days. And you're right. If someone's asked me a question through audio and and I'm starting to answer it. I have no visual cue as to whether it's making sense or maybe it's just flying over their heads and, and I'm not getting that feedback as an instructor and it becomes much more challenging, doesn't it? Yeah, you're not getting any feedback and you know, are people smiling? Are they quizzical? Are they confused? Are you not getting, you know, because similarly, I was teaching my NYU leadership class. I teach in the HR master's program um, for seven weeks of a 14-week course, and then the pandemic hit March of 2020, and we immediately had to go to Zoom the next day. And I had never used Zoom. I had been on Zoom, but I had never... So I had to quickly learn, how do I make this experiential, interactive? And like you're saying, at first, students were hesitant about putting their cameras on. They didn't want to show their backgrounds. Or just It was just out of the comfort zone, right? But what was interesting, once people... I always talk about three Vs, visibility, voice, and value. If you want to have influence, you need to be seen, you need to be heard and you need to make a contribution, right? Without your cameras on, without your mics on, and if you're not putting something in the chat box, are you even there, right? You might as well just watch it on video later. So that's when I said that, the camera's starting to pop, pop on and by the second or third session on Zoom, everyone had their cameras on, mics on, when instructed to do so, contributing in the chat. And it was much more interactive, engaging. I said, let's pretend we're in person. Let's try to make this as realistic as possible. But yeah, if you're just presenting into this void of, of darkness, you, you're getting no feedback. You don't even know if anyone's out there. Through Zoom, through, you know, through whether it's Teams or WebEx, which I, you know, that, that's a whole other conversation. But at least you're seeing faces. At least you feel like you kind of know each other. And what's been interesting lately, I just attended the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches Gathering in Nashville last weekend. So to meet all these people who I had only known on Zoom for the last couple of years was so amazing. We felt like, like you kind of know each other, but not, but just that seeing each other face to face just changes that dynamic of that relationship. So it's just so important to make that visual connection with people and with ideas and with, with things. Yeah, no, fully agree. So Todd, going back to the book, I know it's full of tools, techniques. I mean, I love all of the different tools in here. It's a very practical book. Thank you. Could you share some of those or some of your favorite tools and techniques? And also just a little bit about the structure of the book. Why have you structured it in the way that you have? Yeah, it's, it's structured in terms of the, the framework that I just described. So there's a sec, there's an opening that talks about, you know, what is visual leadership? Why visuals, et cetera. Then I go into, I have a section on using visual models. So I have some of my favorite models from my NYU class, from my coaching practice. So those are the, the frameworks, tools, tips, and techniques. Then I go into metaphors. So those are the more fun kind of like, you know, one is called the elephant in the room, right? So what does the elephant represent? The elephant represents something that's there that no one wants to talk about, right? So I tell the story in the book. One time I was brought into a company to do management leadership training. And that very morning, the company was acquired by another company. And people were told that half the company, half the people there would be laid off, right? Imagine walking in having to do a leadership training under those circumstances when people just got that news. So I kicked off the training. And I was like, hey, how's everyone today? And this and that. And everyone was just like, not there. 
And I finally hit the pause button. I said, let's put things down. I said, there's an elephant in the room. But if, to pretend it's not there, we're doing each other a disservice. We had a conversation. How are people feeling? How are you going to be impacted? And one of the things that came out of it was that if you are one of the people who's going to be laid off, this training is not less important. It's more important because you're going to start going for other job interviews. You're going to start needing to sell yourself, come across as a leader. So once we addressed the elephant in the room and reframed it as, hey, you're going to need this whether you're here or not, I got everyone on board with the training and it went great, right? So, but if you don't address the elephant in the room, then it's just this gigantic thing taking up space and it's an obstruction and it's a distraction. So just that metaphor of what's the elephant in the room reminds us of, you know, we're trying to focus on something, but is there anything external that we brought in with us that may be blocking us or standing in the way, right? So that's just one of many examples. So one of my other metaphors I call yellow ball leadership. When I was growing up, I would throw a red ball, a yellow ball, and a green ball and I would tell my dog to bring back the yellow ball and she would bring it back. And people would say, oh, she's so smart. She always brought back the yellow ball for whatever reason. It had nothing to do with the color. It was like a different texture. There was a bell inside and she loved that yellow ball. So the metaphor there is if you want to, as a manager, set your people up for success, what is that person's yellow ball? What's the thing that if you, if you say go for it, they're going to go for it and bring it back and focus their attention on, right? So started out with my dog from when I was a kid and this little story but the metaphor is, what is this thing that's going to motivate and inspire you, you know, even without being told to do so, right? So again, those are just a few examples of some of the metaphors I use. And in, story, in the story section, it's some of my favorite stories about just life lessons that happened to me. Again, thing that p- people think about, what are the stories of your life and the fact that your future life story is unwritten and you hold the pen, right? So if you want to change your future story pick up a pen and write a different ending and figure out how you're going to get there. So those are just a few examples from the book and some of how it's framed and some of the content. Excellent. So if somebody was interested in the book and they read it cover to cover, what change are you hoping that they will make in their life? Yeah, well, one is just being more aware. Like a lot of what I'm talking about is common sense, but there's a saying by the Revolutionary War guy, Thomas Paine, who said that common sense is not always common practice. Just because we know this stuff doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to use it or use it effectively or use it to, in different ways. So one is it makes you hyper aware of not only when you're using visuals, but when other people, for example, color, you know, color coding, color is all around us. In the UK, you know, again, this, this is like one of the cultural things. What is the colors of a stop traffic light? Are they yellow, red, and green, just like in the US? Yeah. Right. So imagine if you went to another country where it was not yellow, red, and green, but it was purple, orange, and, you know, brown. Mm-hmm. How would you know which was stop, which was go, which was right? So color coding is so embedded culturally that it's a shorthand. And yet in another culture, in another language, things might be very different, right? So we always say that we're divided by a common language. Something may, we, you know, not just spelling, but meanings in different languages and different cultures. So being aware of the colors around us, of frameworks, of how things are done, symbols, you know, that's a big thing about, about symbols. So if we're more visually aware, we're going to be more visually intelligent. And then secondly, we could be more strategic, purposeful, and effective if we use our visual language and visual communication more effectively. So that's the main thing. If some, if some people read this and say, oh, something happened to me and that reminded me of that chapter from your book, then it changes behavior. It changes the way we do things. So that's the main desired outcome to make everyone a more 
astute and aware visual thinker so you can be more effective and more successful. One of my favorite activities, actually you ran this in the Visual Jam, was when you asked the audience to picture of a leader and you got them to draw. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I actually got this exercise idea from a New York Times article. I say, yeah, you have two minutes, draw a leader. What does a leader look like? And what we find is 80% of people draw a middle-aged white male or, or an image that looks like, even if it's a stick figure, it tends to be male, tends to be someone who's tall. It tends to be someone with big ears that visually represents, not, not literally, but represents listening. A lot of times people draw a watch, represents time management. They draw like a speaking bubble, represents speaking. And, you know, so, but what does that say if when you have two minutes to think about it, you draw a picture of a middle-aged white male, if that's our image of what a leader looks like, how does that impact hiring, promotion, that visibility, voice, and value I just talked about? Who gets listened to and heard? So if we want to change the reality, we need to change our mental image of what leadership is and what it looks like. So even women, a lot of times women will kick themselves saying, I can't believe I'm so big on, you know, women's empowerment and women leadership. And yet, why did I draw a middle-aged white male when I thought of a leader? And it's usually someone in a business suit with a, with a tie. And, you know, most of us are not wearing ties anymore these days, but yet that's our image of what leadership is supposed to look like. So that's a great exercise that subconsciously we all have assumptions, biases, unconscious biases, and we need to bring those to the surface so that we can change the reality. It just reminds me of, uh, I spent some time in India running some training for some folks in my previous job. And I remember we were talking about specialist roles in agile and agility, and it's not about more senior, but these were important roles in the team. And what's really interesting was whenever we talk about product owners and scrum masters, the females in the room would constantly refer to them as him. Mm -hmm. He, so what what does he do or what is his responsibilities? And I just found that really insightful because it's kind of on a similar line in that, well, why aren't you saying her or she? And again, it's that bias, that subconscious bias that yeah. maybe they've been brought up with to just assume it's always a guy. Yeah, it's, it's embedded in our language. If you say, you know, spokesman as opposed to spokesperson, right? If you change the language, you start to change the reality and the culture and the way people think and then decisions that are made. And right, so we need to break these stereotypes and the biases and assumptions if we want to make things different. And so often, what's interesting, you know, visually, I, I used to work for a company before I got into management leadership development. I was, it was a web design company. I was the head of business development in New York. I'm six foot four. I don't know what that is an equivalent in meters, but and my our, my CEO was about a foot shorter than me. So he was about five foot four. And I always walked in wearing a business suit and he always walked in carrying a skateboard and wearing baggy jeans and sweatshirt. Who did people always think was the CEO when they were meeting us? The guy in the suit, the tall guy in the suit. Meanwhile, he was the CEO. He was my boss. He just didn't look the part, right? So again, that's an example of the assumptions that we make, you know, and how it impacts decisions, how we treat people. That's why, you know, we need to look at things through a different lens of what we're hiring or even where ideas come from, right? I tell one story in the book when I was working at Disney, I was first, before I got my full-time job, I was just a temp and I was just an assistant sitting and answering phones and I had a great idea for something, but no one listened to me because I was just Todd the temp, right? Who are you to be contributing ideas when you're just sitting there answering phones? Meanwhile, I have a master's degree in communication. I had five years of experience in the entertainment industry, but I was labeled the temp 
And therefore, I had no voice and no one had any willingness to talk, to hear what I had to say. So we need to open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to what's right in front of us that we may be missing. Oh, what a great story. So, Todd, you're definitely not the temp anymore. Ah, <laughs> I'm a long way since I was Todd the temp, yes. Yeah, and talk about a long way. So you mentioned right at the start in your TED Talk, you use a certain metaphor to describe your journey. Would you like to just tell us more about that? Yeah, I use a picture from inside a car, and the road ahead represents the future. The rearview mirror represents the past and also reminds us to take the time to stop and to look into the mirror to reflect on who we are and how we are as leaders. And the dashboard represents our metrics. How do you measure success? Whether they, Just as a car dashboard will tell you how fast you're going, how much oil you have or gas in the tank, what are your metrics for success? What is your on your dashboard? And there's a saying, and this is a metaphor, measure yourself against your own yardstick. Don't try to be the next, you know, Patty Dander or Todd Churches. What's the, what's you 2.0, right? So if you compare yourself to other people, there's always going to be people who are taller, smarter, funnier, better looking, whatever, richer. But if you compare yourself to your current self, then you can say, well, who do I want my future self to be? And that's one of the chapters of my book. Do things today that your future self will thank you for, and don't do things today that your future self will blame you for. So just before I finish off that whole gallon of ice cream, I say, well, my future self thank me for doing this or blame me for what I'm about to do. And most likely, I lost 36 pounds a few years ago and I've kept most of it off ever since. I always have to remind myself that future Todd is not going to be very happy if I finish this whole gallon of ice cream. So that's just a way of visualizing that person that you aspire to be and saying is what I'm about to do going to help me achieve that goal. What a great way to look at things, Todd. I'm going to definitely steal that one. I think ah. I need that in my life. Otherwise, yeah, I'll be I, kicking myself in the future. Easier said than done, but it helps to, again, it helps to kind of be our own coach, right? If we if we talk ourselves, if we just hit the pause button, which is a metaphor, and stop and think for a second, we'll make better decisions for the long term. 